But when you have a Boston police officer who just set the fourth fire of a night and he's laying in the woods in a town outside of Boston and the state police have swarming the area now and they pull over and start shining their light in the woods and the police officer is laying some 20 or 30 feet into the woods and pulls his gun out again and gets ready if the cops I come in. I think that was, you know, in the book, that was the most chilling moment mm. I mean, because I, I, I just, when when you wrote that, you know, and, and you and you put that account in there, and to me it was like, you know, again, I said like one of the strong points of the book was that, you know, you're almost rooting for the bad guys in the beginning, especially with, a you know, if you're a firefighter out there and you have knowledge of, of fire behavior, you're like, this is going to be a good job. You ready, Seb? Off we go, my man. Hey, everybody. It's Rob, National Fire Radio. We're here tonight with a special guest in the studio, Wayne Miller, retired ATF agent and author of Burn, Boston, Burn. In the studio joining us is the one and only Jeremy Don. Hello. And our senior man, Tucker Daly. Hey. Senior man. Senior citizen or senior man? Senior man. I wasn't going to go to the senior citizen. All right. We'll we'll leave it. I'm sorry. I still love you. Yeah. All right. Listen, we got important business in here tonight, Rob. let's, let's, Let's do this. Wayne, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for being here. I can't wait to dive into your story. Rob is uh, Rob was the one that tracked you, tracked you down, chased you down, and said, "Listen, we got a story to tell." So, yeah, Rob, yeah. take it away, man. Let's let's get jump right into this, brother. All right. So uh, I came across I don't I think it was on social media or something this book, and I was like, "Burn Boston, burn." This looks pretty cool. Uh, open it up, and I and I just start reading the first couple pages, and completely enthralled with the story of two hundred and sixty four. Fires and I reached out to one of the Boston uh, guys that we know through the show, and I said to him, "I was like, do you know anybody who worked in this time frame?" And he said, "Oh yeah, it was crazy. The guys were going them, you know, multiple multiples in a night." And I was just like, "Like yeah, how does that?" <laughs> and then you read about it in the book, and uh, you know, halfway through, I said, "I we got to capture this guy's story." And I we wrote an email, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, one day, <laughs> Wayne calls me, and I'm like, "Hello," and he's like, "Hey, it's Wayne Miller. What's up?" And I'm like. This is the guy. I, like, oh, <laughs> like, so, yeah. I'm very easy to get a hold of. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so burn Boston, burn. Uh, like the book centers around this arson ring that happened in the early eighties, in nineteen eighty two to eighty three or eighty four. Okay. And like I said, the, this book is is centered around it. But before we like dive into that, you know, you didn't. I I assumed from reading the book, even after I knew that you were an ATF agent, that you had a background in the fire department, but that's not actually... Not at all. Yeah, so like, kind of like go into your background a little bit for the, 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 the folks that are out there and just really quick as we dive into this. I never once thought in my life I'd be an arson investigator. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, end, you know, I ended up starting out in engineering in college mm-hmm. and uh, didn't like it whatsoever, so I went to Bryant College, which is now Bryant University. Back then they had criminal justice. Um, something ironic. I was on the front page of the Boston Globe business section, and I didn't take business at Bryant, and they did away with the criminal justice program because they wanted to be just solely a business school. <laughs> but uh, it was a Greyhound bus terminal fire during a strike. No kidding. And I had my ATF jacket on, and I was right there on the front page of the business section. So That's pretty funny. <laughs> so at Bryant College, I, I loved criminal justice from day one, and my senior year, they had like, a um, career day and different agencies came up talk in the auditorium 
and somebody from ATF was there. And um, I really didn't know anything about ATF, and I don't think many people did. So um, when I listened, I, I decided to take the exam as soon as I could. Yeah. And the exam was good for uh, Secret Service, Customs, IRS, and ATF. Give me a time frame on this. What year? That was 1975. Okay. Yep. I graduated Bryant in 75. Okay. And was there a family history of law enforcement or None. civil service or anything like that? Or None just whatsoever. Okay. Not at all. Um, I, I ended up not getting a job coming out of college, and I, I finished number one in that class. And I didn't wow. have a job. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I ended up going down to Dennis PD down on the Cape, and I worked yep. undercover down there for them, buying drugs for the summer. Mm. And then I ended up working for Killington as night security for the winter. And uh, ATF called because of my exam. My score was really good, competing against veterans, and et cetera. Yeah. Um, I did well, and Boston office doubled in 1976 from 40 agents to 80 agents. And, wow. Uh, is that because of the load picking up? or Well, we had a concentrated urban enforcement was a new program uh, trying to stop guns and crime, that type of thing. So that's why they doubled the office. But over the next 25 years, they only hired another 40. So it's just the luck of being born at sure. a certain time period. Right. Yeah. And uh, I did my whole career in Boston. I came on June 21, 1976. And uh, my first few years, I was buying guns on the streets. Um, I had a few good gun cases. Um, the night Elvis died, I know exactly what bar I was in in Hyde Park trying to buy okay. guns. You know, it's one of those things that thick it, stick in yeah. your head. You yeah, know? yeah. But uh, when they got serious about the awesome business, um, I knew I wanted to do something besides just doing undercover work. And I realized that working fires was very different. Um, as an arson investigator or a fire investigator, you interview a business owner a cab driver, a homeless person, a banker, insurance people, all on the same case. And that's what a lot of law enforcement uh, is about, is interviewing. Right. And coming up with information, where to go with cases. And working arson cases with all the different motives behind arson. Uh, ATF's concentration was supposed to be uh, arson for profit because right. the local departments really didn't have the time energy, expertise, or money to work on a lot of complicated cases. Right, they'd have investigative units that go out, find cause and origin, but nothing on a grandioso scale, if you will. Right? Ex exactly. Yeah. Plus, right. it's across jurisdictions mm -hmm. of, you know, if out of town. And you're talking about a lot of money involved in an arson for profit case. Like, it's not, again, and I, I think that's always something that jogs into people's minds about, like, when it becomes a felony charge, well, you know, as far as the, the actual cost, but it's not just a couple thousand dollars you're looking at anywhere from... 30 to 60 to upwards of, you know, millions, millions. Absolutely. Mm. So how did the ATF in this time period shift into fire investigation and, and arson as this, like, what was there a catalyst that kind of kicked this off that the, the agency was like, Hey, we need to start putting our hands in this because you know, no one's really doing it and it's gotta be done. That's a good question. Um, do you remember that there was a, uh, a whole magazine that came out, a whole study that federal government did, uh, America Burning or something like that yep. it was called. And the, the major cities, you, know, you guys know New York better. Uh, New York 
certain areas were burning down oh, yeah. nightly. The Warriors. Um, yeah, exactly. The Absolutely. Warriors. Mike, Fo- Mike sure. Foley's Bronx the Warriors. is burning. That's right. <laughs> the Warriors. And we, you know, Mike Foley from Boston wrote the Warriors. Right. Um, uh, so now, was it all that like the late 70s for everybody? or Yeah, it was. Yeah. And, and not just New York and Boston. Right. Um, but other major cities. It was a lot of because of urban renewal really. Uh, the cities have got blighted by then yeah. for some reason. And, it was just decay, right? You I, know, mean, you know, I was. was even thinking where you were going to when you were talking about your early career of buying guns and so on. I mean, it, just the inner cities were really crumbling, right? I mean, it was crime, uh, a lot of crime. Yeah, um, there was. And uh, well, unemployment? I mean, was it... When was it that yeah. New York City went bankrupt and they were asking the federal government for help and they were like... it was under Koch. Was I don't know. Okay. Like 70s. Yeah. I'm, so, so what happened was... Um, uh, ATF had the explosive laws. Mm-hmm. And so anything that had an explosion in the 70s, ATF had jurisdiction. And they expanded that starting in the late 70s. There was a couple people who were higher-ups who had an interest in getting into the fire business. If you poured some gasoline in this room at the right amount, the right mixture, it could explode. So that came under the explosive law. Gotcha. Okay. And so the fire, that's how we back-ended into the fires initially. And then Ronald Reagan in 1980, or 82, 82, I think he signed it, he changed the federal law. If you damage or destroy a building by explosive or fire, he only, the two words got added, or fire, and ATF had jurisdiction. Gotcha. Um, because, mm-hmm. again, the local guys couldn't uh, expend the energy, yeah. time, money, to investigate complicated involved. fires. And mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff was urban renewal type fires. Sure. Okay, so. Interesting. Now, did you have a lot of cooperation between different departments, or was it hard to get all the pieces together at that point? It varied quickly. You had to do your personal relationships. Yeah. You know, uh, the bosses would meet with bosses, <laughs> but we'd work side by side with individuals from the state fire marshals and all the local towns and cities. And some places were much easier than others. Mm-hmm. I mean... You can't blame a place like Boston not trusting the feds. I mean, yeah, when you watch you're on TV for years, you see the FBI always taking something over, you know, yeah. and not sharing <laughs> that type of thing. So they didn't know what ATF was. Nobody did. Well, I was, I was going to say that was ATF has always been a very necessary law enforcement agency, but it's, it seems like it's had a history of potentially being on the chopping block a couple of times where they were going to get rid of the agency. And, you know... Thankfully, they didn't because I think that's a very, I mean, understanding the scope of what ATF and now explosives does, it's very important to have that specialized you know, thing. But like I said, there was a time where, you know, was it back even in the 90s, they were worried about losing. Many times. Um, Ronald Reagan was in New Hampshire and we we're on the same podium protecting him. And he's telling the New Hampshire people that he's going to get rid of ATF. <laughs> you know? And we're right there with him. <laughs> You know, it's not just the gun stuff, but the fire stuff really had a good niche. Yeah. yeah. And the explosive stuff. So you were saying, so you went from guns to fire. I mean, what was what was that catalyst mm-hmm. for you? I mean, what, what fueled, no pun intended, your desire yeah. to get into fire investigation? I just immediately recognized it would be a nice niche to be in. Gotcha. Something different. I mean, other ATF guys always made fun of you. Yeah, you got your fire extinguisher with you today? Yeah, right. Not your gun. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but it was fun. I mean, it was... Uh, something that we 
had classes right in the beginning, not just origin and cause stuff, because we weren't really into origin and cause until the mi uh, middle to late 80s. Okay. But the early part, we were doing arson for profit cl classes for state and locals and for ATF agents. And um, I did go to National Fire Academy for origin and cause from 1980-81, and also the State Fire Academy, those type of things. But um, it was just something... It was more in-depth, and I just liked to work something different than the gun cases. Gun, yeah. gun cases were either paper chases because somebody falsified a form or something like that, or you were buying stolen guns on the street doing undercover work. Yeah, and fire investigation, I mean, you know, especially like arson for profit, things like that. I mean, you're working the street, and you're working the people. You said that before. You know, you enjoyed the interview process of dealing with the owner to the homeless guy in the street, you know, digging through the piles, and, you know, I guess... It was always something different every time you probably hit the street, I could only imagine. Every, every single fire, and again, I started taking an interest in origin cause. Right. And that's why I volunteered in 1986 for the very first CFI, Certified Fire Investigator program that ATF put on, a two-year program. Uh, you had to have 100 fires in your background already and 160 hours within that two years of training. You're um, like, I got that in 82. Very good. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, you know, everyone, every fire I went to, I saw it as a puzzle. Right. And you had so many pieces to put together. And, you know, there's a lot of times when there's a piece missing, you know? Don't you hate that piece missing in the puzzle? Right. <laughs> you know, you right. can't find it. You're looking on the floor yep, underneath absolutely. the couch. I get it. <laughs> well, it's the same thing with fires. There's something missing. What are we, what don't we have? And that was always the most fun. Yeah, in that time frame, late 70s, early 80s, I mean, were you guys kind of writing the script too? I mean, I have to think that it's not, you know, obviously things progress over time, but as ATF became new to the, or newer to the fire investigation side, I have to think that you guys with the federal backing would allow you to find new ways, new methodologies, mm -hmm. new testing. I mean, that probably all came through your tutelage, I would think. You're exactly right. You know, the federal government doesn't always do the right thing, but the awesome program I always felt they did the right thing. Yeah. Um, the money was always there. They trained us every single year, and you could get as much outside training and, and in-house training every single year. And what happened was, you know, when guys were doing fire investigation in the uh, 60s, 70s, and early 80s, they learned it from the older firefighters who said that spalling was this or, right, right, right. or said the kneeling of springs was this, and it was, there was no science behind it. And at the same time, in the early 80s, the fire scientists of U Maryland and other schools were, were researching and doing a lot of work on fire and fire growth and that type of thing. And somebody from ATF contacted U Maryland, and we had built this partnership with them where we took classes down there and with uh, Dr. Quintieri, who wrote one of the great books, yeah. Fred Maurer. Um, those guys, and we started meeting other people and studying and, and learning that, oh, fire grows in this fashion, and that's just the origin and cause. And we also had to learn how to do a fire investigation from beginning to end. You know, I mean, we were investigators, we are trained criminal investigators. How many fire and police departments actually joined together prior to the 1980s yeah. to investigate fires? Right. Yeah. Very few. Now there's teams everywhere because they realize that the police uh, trained investigators and the fire guys, the firemen, firefighters are trained at fires. So you start 
cross training. Sure, and it makes sense. Working together. Do you use the labs at um, University of Maryland then? Um, we use the fire training program um, and the uh, fire buildings. Yeah, because their labs are amazing. Yeah, there. but ATF has a good lab. <laughs> yeah, two good labs. I know. And we have one of the biggest fire. You can put a whole building inside the ATF lab now and burn it. That's wow. how big And where it is. is that? It's in Maryland, but I can't remember what town it's in now. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll go. It yeah. Sounds, yeah. You want to see Absolutely. It. it sounds like the, and this is what I love, is the evolution, right, as, as things change all the time, you know, with technology and education. But it seemed like it went from... Uh, Street smart know-how, senior guy passes it to the next guy, like you were talking about, to through your time frame, it went more to an educational side, uh, tried and true methodology, education, and training, and, and so on, and which is probably where we are today now, is we're highly um, scientific, you know? NFPA 921 came out in the beginning of the 90s. Okay. And evolved to what we have today, like what are we up to the uh, eighth edition or tenth sure. edition? Absolutely, yeah, that can't be uh, right. <laughs> but that did put pressure on people to be more scientific, right? At yeah. the same time, and you know, just some things around the OJ trial, yep, and yep. that forced people to become more scientific. You just can't say something; it just, just because I've seen it a hundred times, it doesn't always happen that way, you know. Yeah, and that's what people used to say. People beyond the stand say, I've seen that a thousand times, you know, but that's not how you testify and that's doesn't get you any place anymore. I think it has a lot to do too. I mean, people watch television, right? So it's Hollywood, you know, and it's yeah. not really how trials work and it's not really how investigations work. You know, I mean, there's a lot more uh, know-how and, and methodology and ingenuity that's got to go into your skills. I mean, 25 years in a week. Yes. In the ATF. <laughs> yes, right? exactly. And now you, uh, you've been uh, working uh, privately as a uh, fire... Last 18 years as a fire explosion analyst. Right, right, absolutely. Your own, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, so that's a testament to the years of experience and, and so on. I thought I read in your book, too, which was pretty interesting, that you investigated over 2,300 fire and explosion scenes. And that number yeah, is... That's a big number. Pretty accurate, and I'll tell you why. <clears throat> ATF mandated that we keep count. Oh, no kidding. And then when I went on the private side, I had the big blotter on my desk. Sure. And I'll bet you I had 10 years stacked together. The blotters. And I would put yeah. what the address was, the case number, and the person's last name for every single fire I went to. And that's how I counted. Wow. So going back to 1982 in March, this arson task force is formed. And you volunteer for this. Yes. And this is kind of what we were talking about a little bit before, driven from this urban decay and this, this situation going on in, in, in America on this whole, like, America's burning. And so they, they, they kind of dump you into this. And that is, coincides with this 2.5% uh, tax cap law that was passed in Massachusetts. And for the book, for, for Burn, Boston, Burn, our conspiracy starts with our conspirators to, to start set these fires. Isn't it an amazing coincidence, actually? And people don't believe in coincidence, but this is one that's real. The ATF Arson Task Force in Boston, and Boston was one of only a half a dozen cities or so, uh, New York, Chicago, L.A., maybe four cities, um, had the Arson Task Force with ATF. And we started in March of 82, and their first fire from these conspirators um, was February of 1982. 
They didn't know that we were forming an arson group. We didn't know they were out setting fires. That's incredible. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> what happened? They ramped up their... Unfortunate for them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they should have gone to another city. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because of Proposition, and I explain to your listeners, uh, Proposition 2.5 was a tax-cutting measure and was passed by the citizens of Massachusetts um, to cap your property taxes at 2.5% of its value, and it couldn't jack up real high every any one year. Um, there's guidelines for that. And when it first came into being, um, cities and towns had to cut somewhere because they didn't know where the money was going to come from initially. So who usually gets cut? Police, fire, and school teachers. Right. And the city of Boston had about 1,700 firefighters at the time. And they lost 600 men at that wow. point in time. 600 people. Um, a couple hundred through rapid attrition and another 400 through layoffs. So that's a very deep cut. And along with that, firehouses yeah. are closed mm-hmm. and fire companies are just sitting there idle. Um, so this particular group, they're fire buffs. Mm-hmm. Now, again, people don't understand fire buffs. And you have to explain that in the book, in a sense. Um, people collect things in life. You know, people collect Beanie Babies and books. <laughs> I, I'm a book collector. I have a thousand hardcovers in my library. Right. And, uh, uh, but fire buffs like to watch firefighting operations, like to take pictures, like to collect memorabilia, equipment, that type of thing. Some people do run to fires. And back then when Boston was burning, there were locations where fire buffs would hang out at night and just wait for the calls to come in. And this particular group who formed a conspiracy were, became a militant group. Mm-hmm. And uh, these, they weren't all liked by some of the other firefighters and fire buffs. A couple of them were loud, boisterous, nasty. But uh, other ones had a lot of close friends. They used to go to the fire buffs picnic. A right. couple of them were members of the Boston Sparks Association. It's the Boston Sparks Association, yeah. right? So for Sparks, I mean, for anybody listening that's not from the New England area, Spark is a fire buff, right? Anywhere yes. else in the yes. country, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's different names from all over, but Boston has that unique term of, of being a spark is, uh, is a buff. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of famous uh, Sparks. Sure. And Arthur Fiedler, the maestro, mm-hmm. was one of the most famous uh, Sparks in the Boston area. So I and I remember reading in the book that like one of the uh, like on top of position um, proposition uh, two and a half getting passed like they closed companies down and I, I forget which twenty two fewer fire companies yes closed yeah. twenty two companies were closed over six hundred men and I, but I forget which fire which arsonist was and which fire but he said like there's a closed house and he watched somebody die yes and. He knew that if that firehouse would have been, or you know, he believed I should say that if that firehouse would have been open, the people would have stood a better chance of surviving the fire, and and it was it was a boundary that got crossed because that's one thing with uh, sparks or, or fire buffs is they don't interfere with fire operations and they don't help, but it was so dire in that situation that the I think it was the district chief or whatever said like, hey, we we'll get get over here and help, and you know, unfortunately, somebody succumbed to this uh, the injuries from the fire. And it really seemed like it was this motivation for them that they had to, they felt they needed to take action. And you, I think you even said like, call it like that Boston patriotic pride of like being like, we're going to do something. And 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, home of the American Revolution type of thing. But, yeah, it was Greg Bemis you're talking about in particular, mm -hmm. and he went to two fires within a month's time where uh, there were fatalities. And one of the fires, he pulls away from the fire scene. He knows where all the firehouses are anyway. But right around the corner from that fire, in front on the door is painted, on the overhead doors, is painted uh, closed, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, that type of thing. And he was very young. He was probably, uh, let's see, just 81. He was uh, 21 years old and um, very impressionable. And um, he really felt badly about it and got angry um, that this happened. And, you know, that's what sparks people in a sense. <laughs> Again, no pun intended. <laughs> but um, people are called to arms, you know. And the firehouses that were closed, one in Hyde Park, one in East Boston, people actually held those hostage. They actually stayed right there and wouldn't let any city officials cross the line until they reopened. That was Is that right? Yes. Wow. They blocked so, the tunnel. You know the old tunnels? Yes. Yep. In and out, some of them in uh, Callahan tunnels. They actually blocked the tunnels. Wow. You know? Yeah. So really interesting time. I think what I, what I would like to do is just paint a picture a little bit, right? I mean, we're all familiar with the book. Rob's, have you read the whole thing? Uh, yeah. Okay. So Rob's done. Um, you know, I'm certainly going to be picking up and, and getting through it because, but it's a, it's a lengthy book with a lot of information and a yeah. lot of detail, which I love. Um, and so maybe we could just hit on it a little bit. You know, you talked about these spark groups and there were other spark groups that weren't involved in, in the arson, uh, spree or what, what would you call it? I think yeah. spree I mean, is a would, good Would one. you even say like the, there's the sparks association and the spark crews and, and these, these guys were considered themselves sparks, but they were really arsonists. I mean, at the end, like they started out as buffs and then they transformed into this because it's something you said in the book. You don't want people to confuse right. a spark right. with a you <clears throat> know, right. criminal. So the, these fires, yeah. and they'd set up to seven multiple alarm fires in one night. Okay. And my second daughter was born June 25th, 1982. I think that night they set six fires and several of them were multiple alarms. Wow. And, um, but they stayed sparks throughout in a sense, but yeah. they also had the other title being arsonist, mm -hmm. you know, uh, fire buffs turned arsonist type of thing. Um, but there were different groups of sparks, absolutely. if you will, right? We, we had, um, you know, the Boston Sparks Association, a lot of members were out there nightly because right. it was entertainment. Well, it's like uh, Detroit, right? When uh, Devil's uh, Night, when right. Detroit yep. burns, I mean, it's there's tons and tons mm -hmm. of people that go just for the sport of it, if you will, which... You know, is is a is an interesting concept. Well, but uh, how many I get it. again? I how get many it. lay people actually? You know, if you see a fire, the lay people stand there and watch sure. it too. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. yep. you know, You're so right. people who understand it a little more, yep. being fire buffs, um, again, they're watching firefighters and watching how they're operating, watching if they're succeeding or failing against these fires, that type of thing, uh, watching the actual fire develop through a building. Uh, so there's a lot to it. Yeah, no, I understand. I've done plenty of buffing myself yeah. over the years. So no <laughs> doubt. No doubt. Now, this time frame was June, right? I mean, it, it started it, in February of 80. February of 80. 82. But it really 82. ramped up in the summer. Right through the summer. By like 82. By October, they had already 100 building fires. Yeah. And when we talk 264 fires, we're only talking structure fires because they had set a couple hundred 
dumpster fires. And wow. if you're familiar with a lot of cities, the dumpsters are right in the back alleys, sure. right behind the buildings. So they would just run down that alley in a vehicle and just toss a delay device into one dumpster after another. When you get to the end or across the Charles River, you could stand there on the other side of the river and watch the fires glowing in all the different dumpsters along That's the incredible. way. Incredible. And I, I, just to put it in perspective, so what I have in front of me, a good friend of ours, uh, Steve Kalman, deputy chief, retired out of Hackensack, New Jersey, um, is a big historian when it comes to firefighting, and uh, he reached out, and I would have loved to have had him here tonight, and he couldn't make it, um, Teacher, but he's teaching tonight. tonight. Yeah. Um, however, I know you and you and he have had some interaction back and forth and yes, conversations. We have. Yeah. And um, and Deputy Chief Kalman, who was really into it, and um, and so we we chatted. And I stopped there today, and I picked up his uh, his one book called Smoke Showing from uh, William Noonan, who was a famed uh, spark. Right? Was he a, uh, was he a spark? A spark but he was a, he was on he was on a job in Boston, oh, okay. yeah. and he was the Boston. He was the photographer for right. almost thirty years. Right, and he's famous for his, his photography, especially for Boston fires, Boston Absolutely. area fires, things like that. Then I also have an article from Firehouse Magazine, September of 1982 issue, and uh, and just a clipped out section about these fires. And just to put it in perspective for people listening, I mean, when you talk about June of 1982 with this arson spree that was going on with this group of, of uh, how many how many were there? There were uh, in that group. The arsonists? Yes. Eight of them were arsonists, and then there was a ninth conspirator. Okay. So eight arsonists running around as a, as a group, I mean, this is this is a, a, a group of arsonists that were working to burn Boston down, really. And what in June of 1982 alone, in one month, they had five working fires, six second alarms, seven third alarms, two fourths, two fifths, three sixths, one seventh, and two ninth alarms. It's outrageous. And then if you go through the dates on them, right, you look at like uh, June 11th, June 11th alone, they had a ninth alarm, six alarm, three alarm, and a five alarm all in the same day. Same, same night. Same night. Same yeah. night. Not even a 24-hour do this. Between be midnight dark. and 5 a.m. Midnight wow. and 5 a.m. And that <laughs> wow. was their M.O., right? I mean, it yes. was, there were all, a lot of over, all overnight fires. Yes, all of them. Yep. Usually by 5 five in the morning, the sun was coming up, and they were going back to bed. So this thing started ramping up. I mean, it was they started in February. I mean, I'm sure you tra- that's where you traced it back to, being an investigator. But it really ramped up over the summer. When did you become involved? I mean, when was the ATF, somebody knocked on your door and said, hey, we might need some help here? In the spring, for sure. Okay. Um, we had already formed a relationship with Boston. Uh, State Fire Marshal wasn't really involved because the fires were happening in Boston at that point in time, and mass fire marshals didn't come into the city much. So um, once we realized there was an uptick, a major uptick in fires, yeah. we'd have meetings with Boston. Um, we just really didn't have a clue who was doing it. And, you know, we couldn't, ATF, we couldn't help think that laid-off firefighters, um, union guys, that type of thing might be involved. Um, not particularly fire buffs. I didn't know much about fire buffs right. in 82. And um, we just ran from fire to fire. Boston did most of the initial ones because they were abandoned uh, house fires, uh, triple-deckers. Uh, two families. And so we weren't really as involved with those until June 3rd of 1982, the Sparrow Toy Company, Mm -hmm. an entire industrial city block, 1,000 feet long, 300 feet wide. Wow. Um, That building burned, and it had uh, cheap imported uh, toys and cardboard boxes. And um, they set the fire on the outside rear along the railroad tracks. It carried inside the building, 
and because of its interstate commerce aspect, that's how ATF would get involved in investigating. And we had the national response team, very first time in Boston, came to that fire. Uh, Dave Eichhoff, Dr. Dave, um, was actually our origin and cause person. Um, and I worked with him on that particular fire for origin and cause. But you interviewed the owners, you interviewed disgruntled employees, you interviewed passerby who saw it, that type of thing. But we really didn't have a good suspect when we were done. Right. And we didn't have one throughout the summer. It was early fall when we got our first break. Now, in that interview portion of this, so as you're doing investigations, I mean, and you've done at least uh, like five or seven, no, you've done hundreds of interviews, right? I mean, like, when do you usually pick up on, like, when you got a good feel, like you come in, you sit Jeremy down and you say, hey, like, we got to talk about this, you know, it's all standard for whatever your whatever your back pocket lines are that you use. How long is it usually, is there, is there a, a thing where you usually say, like, you know what, I've got a feeling about this guy, or like, is it, you know, a certain time frame into the interview where you really start to develop that intuition that, the suspect, because like I said, you're, you're interviewing all these owners and, and, and you know, like right. I said, the homeless person, the, the, the cabbie, the, the owner of the property, like you're just getting to nowhere. But how long does it usually take for that to like kind of start building up on, on somebody that you're like, man, this guy's involved? If you have a person in front of you that doesn't seem right mm-hmm. and they don't seem right because of body language and the way they're answering questions or the way they're going on and on and on about other unrelated topics, trying to get you off the topic, off sure. the question. Um, you know, if they're actually involved with the building in some way, again, we'd ask them to take a polygraph um, based on that feeling that, you know, if you take the polygraph, at least we can eliminate we'll you. clear you. Yeah, right. exactly. And, you know, it can't be used against you in court in almost any jurisdiction. And we tell them that. And we tell them there's no games. They play – They ask you questions ahead of time and show you what it's about. And if you happen to fail it because you're nervous, you know, they always claim sure, they're nervous. Of mm-hmm. <laughs> they are nervous. <laughs> but uh, if you fail it, it just gives us another opportunity to interview you. And once you catch a person in one or two lies, and it's not as easy as today. Today you can catch people in lies because of their cell phone. Sure. Because of the GPS, because of the TV cameras, cameras on the street, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's why this case couldn't really happen like it did. Right, right. You know? No, I have to think though. I mean, you guys went through the summer without a chief suspect. That for investigators with the amount of property loss, right? Yes. You guys really were probably reeling and and like we got to figure this out. I mean, there had to be a lot of frustration. I can only imagine. And some pressure starting them out. Oh, I bet. You know, I bet. Um, not just from the people of Boston, but uh, the higher-ups. Mm-hmm. And eventually, Congress actually was watching this case. Um, they were being fed every day by headquarters and told what's going on in Boston. Well, this was turned out to be the country's largest arson case, correct? That's a direct quote. Actually, I should have that quote quotation marks on the front page, on the cover. Um, the U.S. attorney yeah. said this was the largest arson case in the history of the country. Wow. And initially, I, my son-in-law who designed this cover accidentally put the United States up there. That's not the quote. <laughs> okay. And somebody, Mike Foley, who wrote Busy as Hell, right. said, How co- what country are we talking about? You know, he, That's said, funny. he said it should say the United States. I said, no, it's a direct quote. Yep. Uh, Bill Weld was a U.S. attorney back then and became governor and has run for president. Sure. So, 
but um, we were frustrated. We were confused. Yeah. Um, we were, again, running le- around like chickens with our heads cut off because you had so many fires to contend with. Um, were you yeah. out at night patrolling, oh, yeah. sitting, we sitting in dark alleys? I mean, I have to think, right? You guys <laughs> all were going the out all the stops, yeah. All the above. We had people on top of buildings. Right. I, I was on top in South Boston because there was a rash in South Boston going on. And we were on top of some of the industrial buildings. We had binoculars. We had radios to the teams down below and vehicles. And where to get us? It Actually, no fires occurred right in that area. So maybe something was going on. Maybe they were tipped off somehow. Right. Remember, one of the arsonists was an actual Boston firefighter. Yeah. You know, so were they getting information? And they all had friends. So not not intentionally getting informa- giving information, but just friend to friend saying, oh, yeah, the arson squad's beefed up. They're out tonight. But I have know? to think, too, though, it was all over the news. People were talking. I mean, there's there's rash of fires. The public is, as a whole, is getting nervous. and well, frightened. And, and frightened. I mean, that was, and oh, yeah. so... The the media is going to be all over it. So I mean, they know that the police and the and the uh, the government's out in force. I have to believe. So uh, local news came up with the name somewhere Friday Firebug because a lot of the fires were set Thursday night into Friday morning, and then it took them a while, but they started spreading it out afterwards because we concentrated surveillance efforts. Interesting. You know, was but, there certain sections that were targeted more so than like the empty companies, the companies that were downsized or closed? Well, were those areas impacted more so? Another good question. You guys know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, they started with the abandoned buildings first. And right. part of the reason was uh, less likely to hurt anybody, including mm-hmm. firefighters. And a lot of times they won't go inside the abandoned right. buildings to fight the fires, knowing that people aren't living there. So those buildings happen to be in the poorer sections, which were Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan, Jamaica Plain. Right. Um, parts of South Boston had quite a few. Um, so they would hit those first. And then they spread out to other buildings, included, including businesses. Right. Uh, what was the question? The question was, <laughs> did they target the, the areas where the shuttered oh, firehouses were? Yeah. Then, it, actually, in March of 82, they stole their first firebox off a pole, a pull box, a voice, voice alarm box, okay? Um, they started stealing them for the main reason of setting a fire in that area, and it would be a delayed response. Sure. Now, think back to 1982, you don't have cell phones. Right, People are sleeping in the middle of the night. You're, in, you're not going to knock on a neighbor's door in somebody's neighborhoods in the middle of the night. So you have to find a payphone somewhere or, or a next call box down yep. a few blocks away. So it delayed response sure. and the fire could grow bigger. So they would do that. And then with the firehouses closed, they would pull the firefighters over to one area. Yeah. And knowing the houses are closed and they're all busy over here, then they'd set more fires uh, in those areas. Yeah. Intentionally. They, sure. These guys knew not only the locations of all the fireboxes, they knew all the firehouses that were closed. Well, they're sparks, right? I mean, they, this they, is what they do. I mean, they, yeah. they know the infrastructure of the Boston City Fire Department very, probably more so than a lot of their own members. Uh, that's you know? very true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah, without a doubt. Because, they, a doubt. because they were citywide guys. Right. Whereas, you know, a firefighter's in a fire company for a right. few years before he's maybe in another fire company, yeah. you know? Do you find with serial arsonists, um, they start small and they work their way up? Because you said they, they started, you know, dumpsters and there were other, you know, miscellaneous type fires. Then they would start with abandoned structures and then they got 
seems like more aggressive into occupied businesses or, or shut, shut down businesses for the night, but there's a big dollar loss there. I mean, it seems like there was a progression. There definitely was because they wanted the media coverage too. Okay. In this case, uh, other serial arsonists typically, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah. Typically start where they're comfortable, you know, around the neighborhood. Local, yeah. And you're right. They would do something small, um, you know, a dumpster, a shed or something right. like that. And then once they realized they got away with it, they would go something a little bigger. They gain a little more confidence. And, right. Yeah. And they'd move out, spread away from the house as they get more comfortable doing it. And and I think that was one of the things I picked up in the book was that whole, like your normal MO that you're looking for is this like concentrated. My house is here and I'm within, but they were, like you said, they were citywide. Just, just and, think of it. These guys were, uh, partial law enforcement. Some of them, three, three of them ended up being police officers and, um, fire buffs. They knew the city. Yeah. And then once the city got hot, they went outside the city and set multiple, four multiple alarm fires in one night in Fitchburg and three in Lawrence, north of Boston and another one in Lowell. And then they'd hit two in Quincy, two in Cambridge, two in, uh, Everett, two, two in Canton. Yeah. They went all over the place yeah. and they got very comfortable because they're driving around in their, yeah, their muck. Police cruisers. That's what cracked me up, too, <laughs> yeah. when I heard that, right? The Nerf cruisers. Right? The Nerf cruisers is the term you, that we gave it. Do you know, no. where, where did that come from? Cause Terry, that's... Terry Barry, Special Agent Terry Barry. Nerf cruisers. <laughs> Nerf, what's the Nerf stamp? How did, how did that well, come you remember out? the Nerf ball and yeah, everything? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, stuff like that. It was yeah. very popular back then. Uh, Nerf ball is not a, a real ball, in a sense. Oh, I see what you're saying. That's... <laughs> and the cruiser is not a real cruiser. Yeah. But it looked like a real cruiser. And as a matter of fact, you, want, you wanted a crazy point. They went to Natick Ford, west of Boston, because they had a relationship out there. They went there in the middle of the night and stole a brand new unmarked cruiser <laughs> out of the lot, stole parts off it to update their personal cruiser, and then dumped it into the Fort Point Channel, which is right uh, main part of the city. Unbelievable. Into the channel. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Now, around that time, weren't they taking down the Orange Line, too, in Jamaica Plain? So... Uh, some of the some of the train tracks were coming down at that so point. So would time. that have anything to do with it, as far as not being able to get the sites and knowing, you know, how the department operated? Because that's they're around the zoo too. Then, well, they what was going on? One thing then was the uh, extension of Route 95. They were planning on building um, the Southwest Corridor. That's what they called it. And it never came t true. Uh, underneath the ground there now, they do have train tracks under the ground, so there's a lot of construction in that whole area, and there's a park on top now. And that's, they took down a lot of houses in that area. Yeah. You're right. So there was those areas they could not get through as yeah. easily as they could before. So this roving group of sparks, now, now arsonists, they roamed in a group, in a pack, right? I mean, they, they're driving... Uh, Nerf cruisers, which are mocked up old retired police cars, right? Yep. With uh, they, one of them's got a license plate that says arson, right? I mean, uh, the Boston firefighter had arson <laughs> on his plate. Oh yeah. my, you just can't make this stuff up. <laughs> That's wild. And the local PDs thought he was a member of the arson squad because he had arson on the plate. Sure, makes it right. Yeah, you know? yeah right. So, so how did, what sort of progression? So, you guys are struggling in the summer. June, July, you're struggling to find a, a suspect or a lead, right? And and you're chasing down, I'm sure, every possible loose end you could find. And how did you become familiar with this group? Okay. 
the, the big break happened on November 21, 1982. Uh, Garrity Lumber 2, we call it, because a month earlier they'd burned Garrity Lumber oh, okay. already. Yeah. Had a major fire. So on November 21, they set this blazing fire, and I have video of this that we show during my speaking events. Right, right. And um, uh, Nat Whittemore was a WBZ TV cameraman, and he, he happens to be doing a job that he loves, as a cameraman, he's also a fire buff. Okay. Okay. So he was out every night working and responding to fires. And he went to the lumberyard fire with Ed Fowler, who's now passed away. He was a Cambridge fire investigator. And they got to that fire out there on November 21, and they separated because they saw some tracks that over the grass where there was a heavy uh, frost. And they said, eh, it didn't seem right, you know. So uh, Nat took one way, Ed took another way, and when Nat came around the corner, he saw four guys or so on a lumber pile. And he recognized some of them as sparks, right. guys he knows. But they're always the loud ones. Uh, yeah. They rooted for the home team. The home team is the fire. The firefighters are the ones who are visiting the scene, right? But they yeah. would root for the home team, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and they were being loud and crazy. And, and that's looking at them, and not too far away, you know, 50, 60 feet away. And he has his camera, and he starts to swing it over. And the Boston police officer, not in uniform, but in an army, old green army jacket, pulls out a sidearm and lifts it. So Nat momentarily is in fear for his life. Wow. And then he raises it over his head and waves it around for a couple seconds as if he's on a uh, bucking bronco and acting crazy. Yeah. And the other guys are sort of laughing and hiding their face and stuff like that. And they realize Nat's filming them. So he puts it back in and he just sits there. And they call over. There's a local Dedham police officer because Garrity's on the Hyde Park Dedham mass line. And the cop goes over and I, he's... Rublewski, the one who waved his gun, identifies himself as a Boston police officer. So the Dedham cop didn't do anything. He just said, you know, put it away, you know, don't do that again. So nothing happened. But what did happen is Nat came back to his office, to the studio, told his bosses. They invited Boston Fire, Boston Police, and ATF. We actually saw raw footage the next day or so. And who's that and that, who's that and who's that? So I went to interview the Boston police officer four days later or so, um, about a week later. Yeah. And we interviewed him with my partner, Billy Murphy, at his apartment, this guy's apartment in Weymouth, Mass. And we knock on the door, and he opens the door and invites us in, very cordial. We tell him what we're there for. You know, you're a Boston cop. You know, we're cops. You know, you're hanging out with these guys to, did you hear anything? Do you know anything? That type of thing. And with the best of them, he just lied straight to our face. But he had a firebox on the floor, one of the stolen fireboxes, <laughs> number 1712, the first one stolen, actually, in March of 82. And uh, uh, my partner there, Billy, said, oh, my, my grandfather makes lamps out of those or something. Yeah, and yeah, he yeah. walks over and records the number in his head. Sure. And we actually head back into Boston, and now it's like 9.30 at night. 
we head back into Boston, not where we needed to be. And Billy had a list of the stolen boxes. Sure. In any one year, there's only one or two missing in Boston. And they're all yeah. considered if a car hits the pole or something like that. But they're, <clears throat> they're considered stolen property. Right. So that year, there were 14 of them missing because these guys were stealing them. And so we got a uh, local warrant the next day. Boston PD was not happy about that. No, I bet. And My goodness. They accompanied us, but they weren't happy. As a matter of fact, as soon as we walked into the apartment, we were led into the apartment this time. Bobby wasn't home. And the box was still there on the floor. Why is it still there? Yeah, why would I mean, yeah. is he? If, I mean, for your the intent of you going to this guy's apartment and... I mean, I just, I, I think to myself, like, if this guy would have covered this box up, would have put it anywhere else, and you guys sat down with him and talked to him, like, how, I mean, like, and that's why I asked that question before about when you're interviewing somebody, if you really think, like, hey, maybe this guy's got, like, would do you think it would have put you off that much more into the investigation? Uh, we probably would have knocked on the other guy's doors, the other mm-hmm. ones identified, um, which we ended up doing shortly thereafter anyway. Yeah. Because he didn't tell us anything. And he came in with an attorney and took a polygraph a week later and miserably failed it. (laughs) (laughs) So I said to his attorney, just said to me, he can't talk. Yeah. And I said, what does that mean? He can't talk. And he said, I can't tell you anything else. He can't talk. And um, we were starting to fiddle around again. We started knocking on the doors of a couple other ones. And I got one of them to be a source of information. And he was another police officer. And you can't have him as official informants because they're a police officer. It, right. So. Why, why was that? I didn't, that was one part that I didn't quite understand. Like, now, is, that a, is it a legal thing or is it? It's just, a regu- I don't know, it's regulations. I don't know what it's based on okay. at this point in time. But uh, so I would talk to him by phone or visit him or that type of thing. And, but... He would tell me tidbits, such as, oh, these guys burned an uh, abandoned, stolen car in South Boston. And, yeah, that excited me about as much as yeah. watching paint dry. Yeah. You know? So, oh, yeah, well, they burned a car and it caught on to a building. He told me that sometime later on. Uh, a little more excited, but not much. Well, Donald Stackpole, the owner of a security company, is going to burn some of the company cars for insurance. And, you know, that's insurance fraud, and it's uh, mail fraud under federal guidelines uh, because mailings that happen with your insurance stuff, you know, if you cause them in any way. So we're waiting for that. And we actually put a wire on this guy in the summer of 83 and put a wire on him. But something kept happening with the wire. It just seemed to (laughs) cut out all the time. (laughs) And our tech guy said, Wayne, Something's going on. He was here. playing with you. Yeah. So I had a double agent on my hand. And I, you know, he's my source. Yep. And I felt like crap. Yeah, I got sure. teams out there and we we're trying to wire this guy and all this stuff. Now, during that time, were the fires slowing? They slowed during 83, mainly because of the heat that we did put on yeah. right after the gun waving incident mm-hmm. and the interviewing and all that. Um, a lot of the guys had been rehired, not all of them. And only a couple fire companies got reopened and reactivated. Uh, Boston still never opened, never reactivated some of those fire companies yeah. today. So this guy told me about the car being dumped in the channel. And the 
got the Boston dive team. And the dive team recovered the vehicle for us, along with a couple others that were dumped in the same place. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, with that information, we still sat on it for a while because it wasn't juicy enough to put pressure on these guys yet. So we got a new supervisor um, mid-December of 80, 83, 84, 83. Mm-hmm. And the new supervisor was a very focused individual. And he came up from D.C. and he said, we have to stop what you guys are doing. We have to focus. We have to get out and talk to these guys and put pressure on them. And so we finally, on January 12th of 1984, got Bobby Grablewski at fire headquarters, at police headquarters. He was, he was still a police officer, but he was working now in a turret, and they took his firearm away. Uh, turret is uh, dispatch. Okay. Okay. So we had Bobby come down to an office with a deputy superintendent, a couple of detectives, and two ATF guys. And I don't want to spoil the whole Right. Scene. Sure. It's a good scene yeah. for a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> okay. well, which we hope to see. I, Absolutely. <laughs> actually, there's numerous scenes in here that are very worthy, besides fires. Yeah. I mean, fires is good, uh, good, but, I mean, you can only watch so many, on a, sure. and they can only pay for so many to make a movie. Yeah. But when you have a Boston police officer who just set the fourth fire of a night, and he's laying in the woods in a town outside of Boston, and the state police have swarming the area now, and they pull over and start shining their lights in the woods, and the police officer is laying some 20 or 30 feet into the woods and pulls his gun out again and gets ready if the cops okay. come in. I think that was, you know, in the book, that was the most chilling moment. Mm. I mean, because I, I, I just, when when you wrote that, you know, and, and, you, and you put that account in there, and to me, it was like, you know, again, I said, like, one of the strong points of the book was that, you know, you're almost rooting for the bad guys in the beginning, especially with, a you know, if you're a firefighter out there and you have knowledge of, of fire behavior, you're like, this is going to be a good job when they're talking about where they're setting the, the fuel packages up against the gas shingles and stuff. Isn't it a strange thing to firefighters and fire buffs? Yeah. We, we talk about a good fire. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, we all understand that somebody's losing their property. Uh, the contents, the building, the the memories and injuries, injuries and deaths. We understand that, but as firefighters or people who uh, like to watch fires uh, or fire buffs, uh, a good fire is one that just visually you. looks yeah. better. It's a, one with flame showing mm-hmm. rather than smoke, and we call the other ones crap fires. Uh, in the book, yeah, and it was a term that these fire buffs used yeah. regularly, right. you know. But it, it's interesting. And, and right in that moment, he's making this to, like it, this isn't just like, hey, we're going to light some buildings on fire. It's gone away from that whole aspect of we want to get these guys back on the job. We want to open these companies. He's a law enforcement officer, and he's contemplating using a service weapon against another person who's in the law enforcement community. And I just, I, I, I literally read that, and I put the book down for a second and went. Jesus, how far did this go for these guys? Like, this is, like, that's that point of, like, that moment of clarity, you know, for people to go, like, I'm really sick right now. And I was just like, this, like, and it just, it, that, it was just crazy. We said, we talked about it on the phone. I said, I can't believe the abandoned recklessness of these guys. Absolutely. Act. 
And that was fight or flight right. for him at that point in time. And he doesn't know if he was going to pull the trigger or not for sure. Um, I mean, it came out in trial that it, this did happen. Right. You know, and it's not fantasy. It, it seems like fiction. Yeah. When you're reading some, a lot of this book, right? Yeah. Rob? Um, the dialogue and everything that's in this book seems like fiction, but it's all real dialogue. I mean, they talked about starting fires and like the, cause like one of the things that is very prevalent throughout the book is that they, uh, and then like fire, fire service, they did pre-planning. They went out and they got a list of vacant structures. They were cruising. Like, and you said at some point it was amazing that some of them had girlfriends and wives because of the time they spent to this, but when they were not in their target days, they were out looking for these addresses and and getting these addresses down so they had and they talk about like lighting fires and being like hey jeremy we're going to go down here to dorchester there's a, that that three decker we looked at last week just like him and i would be like you want another vodka and tonic i think i got some another bottle of kettle one back here and we'd be like yeah let's do it but I, like that's all part of it right i mean that's part of the game right is is that you know you, they're looking for buildings that are going to provide them the thrill right it's uh, the the challenge of setting it the challenge of being able to witness and watch it and then the challenge to get away with it, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't really know the criminal mind like you do, of course, but, you know, I'm just having to think as a firefighter, we size up a building, we respond to a fire, we look at the surroundings, we look at the construction of the building, we look at fire growth, fire pathways, right? I mean, all these things. They did exactly yeah, the same exactly, thing. exactly, right. Right, I find that in, just incredibly intriguing, and then it makes me a little nervous about myself because I always size up buildings everywhere I go. You know? <laughs> and <laughs> and the rooting for the home team aspect of it, like that was the other part of the book that just really blew my mind was this ability to say like, yeah, we really got them good. Like they got they got caught. That went to six six alarms, or you know, they they just struck a fifth over here. And and Jim, all right, let's get come on, Tucker, get but in the they, car, let's go. But they had a bunch of brothers getting injuries. Yeah. Right. Yes. I mean, there were firefighters getting hurt. There was nobody killed. Not correct? one fatality. No. Not one fatality. Oh, but, God. But you had a bunch exactly. of firefighters. I know. Um, I read a snippet where there was a wall collapse. I think five guys. There were, was a, a roof collapse. A roof collapse. And um, twenty-two firefighters in total were hurt. Okay. Several of them fell down through the roof, yeah. broken backs and broken legs. That that was a turning point for a lot of people. Uh, that was October second of eighty-two. Right. In South Boston, and it really angered the investigators and the fire department. And again, we still, it was still another month before we got the lucky break, right, right, you know? Right. Um, but still it was another 12, 14 months before we made the first arrest. Yeah. Mm. Can you, can you talk about the emotional roller coaster as the investigator, right? I mean, you're, you're the lead. I mean, you're, you're the guy and, and it's falling, you know, all the higher ups are coming down on you and Wayne, what are we doing here? Like, we, you know, I, I have to think you're, personal life i mean you probably lived ate slept this case you even had to pay for your own gas at some points right <laughs> yeah because with budget cuts federal <laughs> budget cuts um they only gave us 25 dollars in a week and uh, for so, gas yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh deputy superintendent jack gifford the same superintendent who was in the uh office when gablowski confesses uh he used to let me use the boston pump outside his uh precinct <laughs> type yeah. of thing. Once a week, he'd fill me up, nice. which was very helpful. Yeah. Sure. But I'd ride with his anti-crime unit and stuff mm -hmm. like that, too, so I wouldn't use a lot of gas by riding with his guys. But I had to take an emotional toll but, on you. Oh, like, I even mentioned yeah. the night my daughter's born, mm -hmm. my second daughter. Um, here I am. You know, he's supposed to be with the... Uh, I had a one-year-old girl, and my 
newborn and my wife, and my mind is out there with the six multiple alarms they set that night. Yeah. You know, and right. um, it was draining. I mean, we spent a lot of hours back then. Um, once the first arrest was made, we even, I, I would say my hours almost doubled <laughs> at that point. Um, it was just up and down, up and down. And when the new supervisor came in, I, here I am. I'm 30 years old at the time. I'm on the job um, six years total. And you're still learning. As, yeah, you get in the arson business and you're learning. 30 you know? is still young. I'm, yeah. I'm 42 right now. I consider myself young still, you know. So yeah. 30's young. Right. Yeah. And um, at, at some point, you, you, know, you feel uh, inadequate in a yeah. sense. You feel... Uh, uh, I'm not doing the right thing, and what should I be doing more? And if I should be, should I be more aggressive? Because I'm, I'm not by nature, I'm not an aggressive guy. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, should what else should we be doing? But then again, that's part. The supervisors should be supervising right. for that too at the same time. And we still were chasing fire after fire after fire. I'm believe I like I'm, I'm just trying to picture it in my own head, right? Like. The book, there's so much, there's a lot of verbiage and a lot of detail in there. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited to read it and, and really get the gist of all the storytelling. I read some snippets out of the Firehouse articles and a couple other things that I saw online. But I'm just, you know, you're, you're very calm and, and I'm sure that has to do with a lot of your, um, just your 25 years in the, in the ATF of you've done a lot of cases and so on. I mean, you're very, you're very straightforward, matter of fact, and, 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 level you know and and i but at that time man i mean imagine just driving around boston and in the in the little cities outside of boston and waiting for that next fire to pop up or where they are i mean i can't even it's really hard to to figure out you'd you be know? driving around during the day you know whether you're right. going to do an interview or just going to the office and you are thinking about what's going to happen today yeah right. you know at, at the the spirit toy fire in the book um you talk about how that fire, the fire set, and it almost looked like it was an outside fire, and it kind of got away from the first engine company, and then it goes to this multiple alarm uh, fire, and then when the fire commissioner struck the ninth alarm, there was cheering. Um, now at that point, was that cheering from like all of the all of the sparks because this fire, like this this incident happened, and they were like, "Hi, you gotta call the guys in," like you know, or was it just from a ring of conspirators. No, it was all the sparks and maybe even some of the firefighters who were working. Um, you know, when these fires are happening, if, you, if you're not calling a second alarm or a third alarm, because you're only coming out there with a, a couple of firefighters and an officer yep. on one truck, something like that. And, um, you know, many times the uh, conspirators, the fire buffs, they said, you know, that's the biggest two-alarm fire that Boston ever had, you know, because it should have been called a third right. and something right. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you don't have that many nine-alarm fires. And so every pizza apparatus, and there was a major fire already in Dorchester, two triple-deckers side-by-side, uh, because they set it right between the two of them, and there was only a walkway between the two. The gasoline yeah. uh, siding, right? Shingles, yes. Shingles, yeah. right? Yes, yes. I mean, for an investigator, I mean, that was, you guys had a cringe when you see those buildings in these neighborhoods oh. with that, right? I mean, that's... Uh, there were so many you wouldn't believe. Right. I didn't believe. Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, most of those are gone nowadays. As, but. as an investigator, can you just hit on that real quick? Because we might have some younger listeners that, you sure. know, in their, in their, the, that maybe don't understand or haven't really seen them. Because they're not prevalent anymore. Right. Some inner cities still have some homes with them left, i got to believe. But for the most part, I mean, they're, they're not really in circulation, if you will. They're not, they're not prevalent to a lot of our mm-hmm. listeners. So maybe you could just touch on that for nope. me, Wayne. Back in the 1940s and 50s, they would side a lot of the exterior siding of the houses with shingles that looked much like the roof shingles, except right. they were a different size. And that's made from a petroleum product. Right. And, you know, it, it's solid gasoline in a sense. And they're actually called asphalt shingles, just like the ones on your roof nowadays. A lot of people have. And, but if you put a... A device, a fuel load next to these shingles, and because they're in a vertical configuration, right. that fire would grow rapidly from the ground level right up to the roof line right. in a matter of a couple minutes. Yeah, you're, and th- you're three stories and you're about three feet apart from Yeah, you got triple yes. deckers with a 36-inch, yeah. 48-inch yeah. alleyway between the old them. Three you got fire in between them. You got the boom. radiating energy yeah. stuff yeah. between right. the two of them, and you got the radiant energy and catching on both. And it goes right you're off to the races. And it's off to the races. That's right. right. And yep. and the fuel package that they were using, it was one of the things that I kept, like, just really my mind got hung up on because of, like, I think of modern CSI, right? Like, there's gonna they're going to come in and take samples of everything, and they're going to go to the lab, and they're going to come back with a list and be like, all right, we figured out that it's this fuel. It can only be bought from this place, and there's only six people with credit cards who did it that day. It's television. But, yeah, it's television. Well, yeah. we have a lot of bombing cases that way. Mm-hmm. Same yeah. thing. We've gone over to Radio Shack and came up with the receipt and, uh, because yeah. you used a servo um, remote control. Uh, so that's how we catch how people a lot of times. Yeah. But, yeah. So, but, but in this device, um, they did use a Coleman fuel as uh, mm-hmm. the liquid accelerant. And it was very simple. Just carry a brown paper bag and they had tissue and they had a matchbook and, and um, a cigarette laced through the matches. And I, I'm not telling anything out of school anymore because, uh, A, it was in the trial. Right. B, it's in my book. Right. Uh, C, it was in magazines and newspapers once these guys get arrested, uh, court documents, um, and the Internet. So it's nothing. I'm not, like, telling anybody how to make Did a device. Did they all use the same style of device, or was it? This, the, in this yeah, case? Yeah. Oh, they started using that right away. Okay. Um, the only thing that was different, they would try to place it, Inside or outside, just placing that bag. And what they do is light the um, cigarette at the last moment and lace it through the matches. Right. And the tissue would get going and then the fuel. And the fuel just sort of leaks out and you're getting the gases going. You know, you don't burn the liquid, but you're getting the gases of those fuels get going. And you now have a good first fuel to catch on to any combustibles sure. around. Right. And there's right. always debris in these abandoned buildings, always trash, always... Um, uh, plaster and lath right. walls, yeah. and the yeah. walls were stripped, so you have the lath, which is right. kindling wood, yeah, basically. Kindling, yeah. And then it's all dried out. It's old buildings. You know, you put it up against the asphalt siding, but then they added a tire because you could get tire off of any oh, abandoned yeah. lot around Boston, and so they to throw two or three in the trunk that night, and they would put a tire, and they'd put the device in the well of the tire. And we tested this at Moon Island, Boston's uh, Fire Academy. Interesting. And um, once you get going, it starts going. It starts swirling around inside. The flame starts swirling around, and then the tire finally gets, you know, tire you can't just light with a, right. a match. So, But once you get the tire going, you've got a significant second fuel there oh, yeah. now to get a building going. And that made it last much longer to catch on to somebody. They were 
striking out too often. Um, my only fear with writing this, I had a journal from Greg Bemis, one of the arsonists, and he wrote it in prison. Mm-hmm. 166 single space typed. Um, a he kept, cr- a he chronicle. Kept track of all his fires? Uh, he wrote it while he was in prison, though. Oh, okay. But okay. Right. I had debriefed Bemis after he confessed and prepped him for trial, and I spent hundreds of hours with him. And what he wrote in there was the same things that he told us, almost word for word. And um, I always lose my track. No, that's okay. <laughs> so word for word, he's, he's writing, oh. he's writing so, his journal? Is he's talking about the fuel packages the, with the, the device. Tires. My fear with the, writing the book mm-hmm. is as, not as many firefighters are going to get bogged down in the middle when they're setting fire after fire, but I had a couple of women who read it who were lay people. And they said there was a little bit too much, too many, too much detail. And actually, I started, I had cut out a lot. And when they're out setting three or four fires in a night and two of them don't go anywhere, I put it down to like a single sentence or a single two-line paragraph type of thing. The reason I kept it in there, and I kept only the juicier nights when they almost got caught or when they fell through the floor or something like that. But those couple lines in it, it's just the reiteration, the repetition showed you these guys were at it like yeah, three or four nights a week right. and they're setting two or three or four or seven. In one well, if you night. think about it, right? How many successful 264 fires in a three year period, right? How many didn't take off? Yeah. yeah. How many, you know, yeah. weren't discovered or, st- or stomped out or, and, and I, mean, I that's think, a, or nuisance fires, right? Yeah. Was, right. You know, because on top of all the arson fires, Boston Fire and the surrounding communities are still going to right. all the other normal, normal right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and it was like there. There's points in the book, and they talk about being frustrated at the good companies getting there and getting a knock on it because they know what they're doing, and like that, you know that. Fr- and I just, I don't know. There was just so many contradictions in it that was, like I said, it was just fantastic. Now, kind of moving forward a little bit because it's something that I don't think people hit on very much is that. You talked about having like with, with BMS developing this friendship, debriefing him, preparing him for trial. Like that's a side of the investigation that I don't think many firefighters ever get a glimpse into, and that was fantastic to see. But can you kind of touch on that because you went from, and I, there's even part, parts in the book where you say their words, not mine, and I can almost sense that like um, I don't want to say agitation's not the word, but like, or, and I don't even want to say resentment. But after all these years, you're still. Like, yeah, I can't, you're just as shocked as I am that they had this mentality. But what was it like to develop that relationship with somebody like Bemis and say, like, hey, like, we're going to talk about this and, and walking through and then really developing a friendship with them mm-hmm. after all these years? I mean, it had to be. It's a strange relationship. It, um, it, it's hard to explain to people. Um, here's these guys, you, you arrest them, and they've lied to your face multiple times, and they lied in grand jury. And they lied up until the moment you arrest them. They even lied after you arrested them. And Bemis was in the same cell with two other conspirators for a couple of weeks before he decided to finally come clean. And, you know, he's a likable kid. He's, he's a friendly type of guy. He never got, he's, and Grubluski never got angry at us either when we arrested him. Um, they realized it was their fault, in a sense. It's not our fault. We're just doing our job. But there's a lot of people who don't like law enforcement because they're doing their job. But not these guys. Um, but 
Bemis, um, when you spend so much time with the kid, and again, I'm 30, he's 22 at that point now, by the time we get him to almost 23, and, um, you know, he tells you everything. Um, he, his memory was fantastic, and we'd have the run sheets from the city of Boston, and he said, oh, we're on a spree that night. And that's his word. We were on a spree. And he says, we jumped over the fence, and it was Bobby and me, and it was raining that night. No, I remember there were green shut- shingles on that building. And he remembered everything. And we put the device by the back window and, you know, that type of thing. And um, we sat with him in the car. And we, like I said, we drove from scene to scene, even so the vacant lots now or rehab buildings or that type of thing. And what did you do? And we recorded everything right on site at that point. And you're having lunch together, and you're having breakfast together, and you're having dinner together. And you, you can't be an enemy because you're going to shut him down for right. one thing. Right. And, but you do develop this weird quasi-relation, friendship, you know. And, um, again, he never got angry with us. And he sent us Christmas cards when he went to prison. And he was in contact with... Uh, Terry Barry in particular because he had a stronger relationship with Terry even. Terry's, Terry was with me during that whole briefing and debriefing and prepping. Yeah. And then <clears throat> Greg got out of prison. Uh, I did not have any contact with him except bumped into him twice. <laughs> Ex- bumped into him. Is that right? Well, he was parked across the street when we were doing a training fire, for one. <laughs> and I went and knocked on the window. How you doing, Greg? And... Um, Again, we had a little conversation, friendly. And then I was in a uh, restaurant north of Boston one day with another fire friend. And I came out of the men's room, and somebody was standing in my way. And it was Greg. He had seen me go into the men's room. He he was just busting my chop by standing in my way. But it was a friendly conversation. Wow. Um, I mean, he testified in two trials, and he did a fantastic job in the two trials. And... um, uh, again, he didn't hold back at that point, and he knew he was screwed and he was going to prison. He actually got a 30-year sentence wow. initially, even mm-hmm. so he was testifying and everything else. And then when I was writing the book, I reached out and tried to find him, and I hadn't really contacted him, but when I had my website, I had my phone number on there, and Greg called one day. No kidding. Wow. Yep. And I was shocked, and it was... It was a good conversation. We talked for like a half hour the first time. I've been to his house now several times, and we've gone out to dinner. So Again. he's out now. He's Oh, he's yeah. Out. Everybody's been Everybody's, out. okay. Um, the federal system back then, you were actually eligible after 10 years. Oh, okay. And um, because they actually reduced his sentence afterwards anyway because of his cooperation. But um, Can you rehabilitate an arsonist? <laughs> That's too general a question. I know. I, I, I don't know how else. I mean, uh, you know why? Because it's an addiction, right? I mean, it's, well, it's, the, it's the thrill of it, right? It's well, the, only for some arsonists. I mean, okay. obviously, there's an arson, uh, a serial arsonist, if you're asking that. Can you rehabilitate a serial arsonist? But then these guys were different than other serial arsonists who were doing it for various reasons. Right. Um, whether they do get a thrill addiction these guys were addicted i mentioned it several times they were addicted they were into it it was nightly entertainment absolutely and the fact that that he remembered every single fire every placement every fence he jumped every 
device laid. I mean, that, that to me is, it's premeditation. And then it's, it's just the memory of the excitement of that experience. I mean, you, you remember the details of things that enthrall you, right? Like, and, and I, I have to think that that's, yeah. you know, where. And, and Bemis was the most active, right? As out of all, like was he? Bemis could have been at uh, probably 260 out of 264 of the fires. And was Stackpole, was he wow. the second that was, or who, who was, who was always, like who was his close second as far as riding with him? Through? Um, Stackpole and Gubluski, the Boston cop. Right. Okay. And then the other guys, uh, Wayne Sandin, uh, Boston Housing Cop. Mm-hmm. He was he probably about 55. He was my source, okay? Even when we arrested him, he never confessed. And even when he pled guilty, the judge took his guilty plea without the adjudication that you normally, really? yes, because he wouldn't say anything about his involvement. Why didn't that kid, again, he was fairly young. He was probably 26 years old at the time they were setting the fires around that time period. I don't know the reason today. Why did Wayne Sandin give me tidbits to keep me excited enough with this investigation at that angle and onto these guys? And why did he tell me about the car they dumped and stuff like that, but not tell me? Yeah, I was involved. Yeah, with fifty fires. The one that caught on the car that caught onto a building, that actually only happened uh, late fall of '83. That one, he could have told me that. He could have saved himself years and saved people problems, heartaches, injuries, and he never did. He got wow. he got a twenty six year sentence. Mm. Wow, interesting. It's an incredible time period. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm thumbing through here. I read some stats before, and just for the firefighter and all of us, right? I mean, I just, I'm looking at it here. This is the June fires, and then you go to, you know, uh, July. I mean, you're talking 21-day uh, period. They went to four working fires, several incidents, less serious nature. Uh, let's see here. They had, I mean, I'm just counting. It's three alarm, two alarm. I mean, just seven alarms, nine alarms, seven alarms, seven alarm. I mean, these are massive, massive fires. And to go through just some of the numbers too, just to put it in perspective, I mean, Boston's not a massive city. No. It's not a big city, right? When we think of the cities in, in the United States, we think of New York, LA, Chicago, and Boston. Those are like right. the big four that stand out. But in fact, Boston's not a huge city. No, if you're lucky, um, it's four and a half, five miles across the same north and south. So just to put it in perspective, when when you're laying off 600 firefighters and closing 55 companies uh, or closing 22 22 companies, companies, I mean, they only had 55 companies and 225 firefighters working. You're cutting out a third of the force. Right. Yeah. And then on top of that, um, they said that this brought forth a huge mutual aid response through all the other little cities there's, makeup of that area, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot one, of fire departments. There's one picture that you have in uh, the Firehouse magazine. It's also in the book. Yeah. Or uh, I don't know if that one's in the book, but I have it on video. Mm-hmm. Um, the chief is standing there by himself. This one. Yes. And there's flames coming out of a, a multi-story commercial structure. Yeah. And basically... Shrugging your shoulders because he doesn't have any fire companies right. there. There's no water. There's no right. firefighters. And wasn't that an issue in your book too with Sparks that they were saying, "Where are the companies? Yeah, where nobody's coming." That's right. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's- people approach them, and they like Bemis heard 
lay people saying, where's the firefighters? That was June 11th, I think. That night where they're out setting seven of the yeah, multiple June, on fires. June 11th was yeah. pretty pivotal. The night, biggest yeah. night. And um, uh, companies came from Weymouth, Quincy, you know, all outside companies were the first arrived wow. to arrive at a fire. It's not, not a Boston company. It's incredible. The chaplain. Chaplain was yeah. the first yeah. one out, out of the fire that night. And then your your buddy from ladder. Um, uh, twenty nine. Yeah, ladder twenty nine was yeah. was one of them, and yeah, you know, just no water, buildings going stem to stern. Yeah, ladder twenty nine was an extra piece then. It was an old piece, and he he responded to one of the first major multiple alarm fires in the night, and then he was the radio call came in for another one, and he's actually heading back to quarters. And he said, I'd like to respond, you know, so they send him to that. And then he goes to another one and it's an extra piece, yeah. you know, it's an older ladder truck, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's an incredible, um, I, I really didn't know much about this story, um, until the last few weeks when Rob brought this to my attention. And then I was talking with a few people that are familiar and we have some friends on the job up in that area that are very familiar with the, the history of it. I think this story is incredible. Um, we're excited to get this out. I'm so happy that you came in tonight to, to speak with us. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a pivotal role in the American fire service, uh, in fire investigation and in the, in the, uh, longevity of the ATF. I mean, all of it is just, there's history here. It's, yeah. it's Boston yeah. history. Right. It's Boston area history. Yes. It's, it's fire history. Right. It's ATF history. It's, uh, uh an arson chronicle. Um, I have, uh, 14 teaching points I do for certain. I'm doing a main IAAI okay. um, in a couple of weeks. Great. And they wanted me to do six hours. And so I have 14 teaching points that take from take away from this case. Yeah. Um, uh, I do, you know, speaking for the buffs, fire buffs. I've done it in uh, I'm this Friday, you know, I'm doing it in New Haven with the Connecticut fire photographers. Um, Good group. There's... So much interest in this. It's been amazing. And I've gotten so much help from so many people. It's great. And uh, I love doing the project. Um, the publishing part was the biggest pain in the you know. But, yeah, sure. But uh, I self-published. But Oh, really? Yes. Wow. But it's, everything's a learning process. Just like I have Facebook, Burn Boston Burn is the Facebook page. And I never did Facebook in my life. Sure. And yesterday, just yesterday, I did the LinkedIn yesterday mm -hmm. and a Twitter account a couple of days ago, but I don't know what to do with Twitter yet still. <laughs> and uh, um, so it's been fun. And and the um, my website, burnbostonburn.com. Yeah. So and I'm glad that we were going to we were going to plug all that, of course, for you. But um, but absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of information about this out there. But what you've done is. You know, being that lead and being so heavily involved in this case and, and being the lead investigator and so on. I mean, this book is just bulletproof, man. I mean, there's so much stuff in it. And there's it is it's a history book. And if you're into the American Fire Service, um, into fire investigation, if you like crime novels, I mean, all of it, there's a lot of detail um, and it's it's very well written. And um, I truly honored to have you here tonight. And we're looking forward to do some more projects with you. Um, and to get the word out about Burn, Boston, Burn, it's one heck of a book. And uh, I, I just, I thank you for being here tonight. It's been a fantastic storytelling. I loved it. I, yeah, I like good. talking about the case. Yeah, of course. I really appreciate you guys yeah. reaching okay. out to me and having me. We're Great. Thanks for coming. Have you here. I mean, this has yeah. been a, this has been awesome. So. And and we should say that uh, November nineteenth, because this is this will yep. be out in the next mm -hmm. few days, this podcast. But November nineteenth, uh, in Framingham, Massachusetts, we're going to be having one of our on tap episodes. 
Uh, we're going to be doing a Northeast Truck Company uh, roundtable discussion. But uh, before turntable that, turntable to the roundtable. From the turntable to the roundtable, as Mr. Ridley <laughs> likes to say. But the fun thing about that is this is your backyard. And so we're excited to have you there. Um, and what we'll do is we'll have books there. And uh, Wayne will certainly uh, have a few minutes to chat about the history of uh, Burn Boston Burn, the book that he had written. And, uh, and we'll have some slides up and some video of actual fires and so on. We were talking about uh, maybe getting that up too. Yep. Uh, and so on. So it's a fantastic opportunity. So if you're in that uh, New England area, um, Framingham is between Worcester and uh, Boston. I hope I said Worcester right. Wor- That's Worcester. close enough. Close enough. <laughs> New Jersey accent. Right? <laughs> and, but, um, ja- at Jack's Abbey. Jack's Abbey, right. Yeah. Jack's Abbey uh, Brewing Company. Um, and we're taking the place over. Um, it's going to be a great night from 6 to 10. Uh, and so uh, we, it, you know, we entice you to come. It's going to be a great night of brotherhood and uh, celebrating the fire service. And I think this falls right in line with it, Wayne. Um, you yeah. know, that you very much fit what we're trying to do for the fire service. And uh, we love history and culture and tradition. And this is history 101. I mean, this is something that any um, spark fire buff or anybody that's just into the job, yeah. it's a fantastic Absolutely. read and, uh, and full of information. So. We'd love to get you out there, and I oh, can't thank you just, enough for being it's here. It's in my calendar already. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, yeah. Wayne, truly. Thank you, guys. So, good. What do you got? You taking us out? I'll take us out, man. Take it out. Everybody, it's Rob, National Fire Radio. Thanks for joining us tonight. Wayne Miller, Burn, Boston, Burn, retired ATF, now featured author here on uh, National Fire Radio. Featured author. Nice. <laughs> but uh, thank thanks, for, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys later. Don't forget our on-tap event out in Massachusetts on the 19th of November. We'll see you there. This is Rob, National Fire Radio, Jeremy, Tucker, and Wayne Miller. Cheers, everybody. Thank you, Wayne.